0: At this time, I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 16. Turn in your Bibles or open up your device and turn there. We're coming back to it last week, we, and now we're coming back into this section. Um, this section, which is on that night when Jesus was betrayed, on that night when he celebrated the Passover and instituted the Lord's Supper, and he taught his disciples many things. And so we come into this section today in chapter 16 that has to do with the Holy Spirit, 15 this morning. So as you have your device or your Bible, you'll want to follow along as I read through this this morning. And if you need a Bible, we have these blue Bibles you see on the end of every row. Please feel free to take one, take one home. Uh, We have plenty. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. But follow along with me, John chapter 16, beginning in verse 4. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks to God. Thanks, Josh. In our study of uh, the Christ that satisfies in the book of John, the gospel of John, and uh, we're back in that farewell discourse uh, where Jesus tells his disciples uh, His last words before the crucifixion, he talks about these things an awful lot uh, in this farewell discourse, and he does that for a reason. He's trying to prepare them for a difficult challenge ahead. Now, that difficult challenge reminds me of an experience I had with some friends that I've told you about in the past. About five years ago, about 10 of us took a trip to British Columbia, Canada to do a mountaineering experience on Mount Albert, an 8,300-foot uh, mountain where we would actually literally hike from uh, the water where we were dropped off straight up to the peak of that mountain. And uh, I have to tell you, it was, it was quite a challenge for all of us. We were middle age at the time, still are. And it was a particular challenge for me due to injuries that I had experienced playing sports as a kid, and I, I had bad knees. And uh, it was pretty painful, those first hours of hiking, pretty pretty tiring, especially with a 60-pound pack on my back. And uh, this all, this difficulty for me became clear for all of us when I was starting to fall behind and I was really struggling. Everybody knew it. Well, we stopped and I asked for help from our guides, the guys who were taking us up the mountain and back. And there were two things they did that day that was really interesting. The first thing was this, they taught me how to walk you got to walk a certain way when you're climbing a mountain with especially a big pack on your back. When When we normally walk, we're just kind of strolling along. But when you're going up a mountain, you have to lock your knees. When you go take a step, you lock your knee back. Another step, lock your knee back, and you're doing this the whole way. And here's why. You put all the weight on your skeleton, not your muscles. And that's what it does to spare you so you won't wear out too fast. So I had to learn how to walk. But another thing happened, too. Some of the guys, my friends, came around me, and they took a few pounds each from my pack so that my pack went from 60 pounds down to about 40 pounds, which was a little more manageable for me. This was all a real blessing, learning how to walk. And the the happy news is that we made it both up the mountain, almost to the summit, and then back down just fine as a result of what I'd learned. I learned how to walk, and I had help with my friends taking on some of the weight. And guys, that's what we're going to look at today here in uh, John chapter 16, where Jesus talks about the help he provides for us as we walk in this challenging thing called the Christian life. And he talks about it in the context of a challenging season. He's just been discussing in chapters 15 and 16 how when you follow him, you will experience resistance from the world. After all, Jesus himself experienced resistance, so we will experience it as well. Now, in our text, he tells us how we gain that help, how we make it up the long trek up a mountain and make it spiritually important for us today, and here's why. Most of us, when we talk about Christianity, we rightly talk about Christianity in the past, how Jesus uh, lived and died and was resurrected for us, and that matters. That's the gospel in history itself. But it also we have to recognize that what we're going to talk about today has something to do with us right now, right here, where we live in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this is our big question today. How does Jesus engage us as we follow him through the challenges right now? Whatever we're experiencing right now. And to kind of clarify, how does the Holy Spirit help us personally in everyday life, even the challenges we face? And so here's what I want you to do before we get started. Think on something that is a challenge in your life right now that feels too big, that is too much, too hard, or you even feel some guilt about. I want to talk to you about that today as we look at this text in particular. So look at your outline. It's in the bulletin, on the back of the bulletin, where we're going to check out how Jesus goes and sins, how the Holy Spirit comes and convicts, guides, and yes, even glorifies. So the first thing we're going to look at is in verses 4 through 7, where Jesus goes and sins, and let's look at 5 and 7 in particular as Jesus is speaking to his disciples, this is what he says, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask, where are you going? And then jump down to verse 7. He says, nevertheless, I tell you, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, here's the context. Jesus is talking to his disciples. It's in the first century upper room, the farewell discourse. They've been following him for three years with him, watching him do amazing things, listening to him speak the gospel and extraordinary things, watching him heal people, do extraordinary things, walk on water. I mean, he's been amazing. And as they've experienced him personally, they're attached. I mean, they're connected. And then Jesus drops this bomb on them that he's brought up several times already. And starting in chapter 13, he says in verse 5, I'm going away. I'm leaving. I'm going away. And more specifically, it says, I'm going to the one who sent me, that is, the Father. Now, here's the key to what Jesus is saying. Apparently, Jesus would no longer be accessible to those disciples by sight, sound, or touch. He wouldn't be available in this world in that way. He's leaving. So that begs the question, where is he going? Where is he right now as we speak? Well, the Bible teaches that Jesus is with the Father in a very real place called heaven, a real physical place because Jesus has a physical resurrection body. What we find in that place is Jesus is also alive. He's well. He's living with a resurrected body in that place. Moreover, he is also seated, as the language of Scripture says, at the right hand of God the Father. And here's what that means. He's fully engaged with what's going on with you and with me right now. He's fully engaged. Jesus is not an absentee leader. Now, this is what what Jesus is alluding to here is what uh, uh, um, theologians call the session of Christ, that is where he is ruling as the Lord of the universe. He's seated because his work is done. Remember, it is finished at the cross. But he's also seated because he's at rest and in control of all that's going on. There are no surprises in this world with Jesus as the Lord of all ruling. He is ruling over everything as a living king. Every his rule. Everything. Psalm 110 says it this way, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make enemies at your footstool. Jesus is the Lord right now over everything, seated at the right hand of God in session. Now, back to our disciples, you can imagine this news that he was leaving was hard for them. It caused them sorrow in their hearts, as it says in our text. I mean, how would you feel if somebody you're really close to after three years is just gone? like that. How would you feel? And now how many times have you and I thought, wow, wouldn't it be great if I could see Jesus physically, touch him physically? Because sometimes it's hard to believe something you haven't, someone you haven't seen or felt or experienced. But here's the strange thing. Jesus tells us something in our text that is totally surprising. Look at verse 7 in our text. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is To your advantage that I go away. It is to your advantage that I go away. Jesus is telling us that along with the Father, He is going to send the Holy Spirit, and that that is actually better for us than being with Him in the flesh in this world. The Holy Spirit's presence, His work in our life, is somehow superior, according to Jesus. Now, I'll be clear, one day we will be with Jesus in heaven, and we will see him face to face. But right now in this world, in between his first and second coming, it's better that the Holy Spirit is here with us. Now, you've got to ask, how can that be? I mean, I'd much rather be with Jesus in heaven. Well, hang on. We're not in heaven yet. What about right now? The first thing I'd tell you this is, is why that is so important is this. Jesus left no material part of himself in this world when he was resurrected and ascended. He took his body and everything. He left nothing of his own material goods. But he is saying that he is leaving with his presence. He's leaving us with his presence in the Holy Spirit now. And that's not just with us, it's in us. The Holy Spirit he is in us as temples of his spirit. Remember the great commission, I will be with you always to the end of the age. Well Jesus gives us further promises back in John 14 where he says the Holy Spirit will be with you and in you. That's the first way Jesus why Jesus tells us it's better to be with the spirit. Second quick way is this Jesus is telling us that us now Heaven comes to us now through the Spirit. Ephesians says that the Holy Spirit is a down payment for our future. So that when we end up in heaven with Christ in the future, what will happen is this. We'll be there with the Holy Spirit's presence surrounding us, with us, in us. But what Jesus is saying here is that you and I can experience that future right now. Right now with the Holy Spirit in you Jesus, we can taste eternity even now. And quickly, the third reason why this is such a good thing that we have the Holy Spirit now is this Jesus sends the Holy Spirit personally. Personally. Have you ever wondered why Jesus keeps talking in this text about, I'm going to send the Spirit, I'm going to send the Spirit? Haven't you ever thought, well, wait a minute, isn't God omnipresent? Isn't the Spirit already here? What's he talking about? Well, here's what he's saying. There's something about how he's sending the Spirit that personally engages you and me in a relational dynamic that's unlike any other thing that the Spirit will do with people in this world. This is purposeful engagement. God the Spirit wants to be with us and in us and engage us in a just relationship, not a, a, even a false relationship. He wants to really be engaged with us through Christ. Best analogy I can come up with, Holy Spirit is uh, being sent to us as a, like a, a business meeting, even a date, versus a casual meeting of someone at the mall. The Holy Spirit comes with purpose, intentionality, to meet us where we are in the midst of our challenges of life. Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit, then, is for us and in us and is a personal engagement. But that begs a question, when? When does the Holy Spirit come? What sending is he taught? Think about this. First is this. He sends the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts 2. That's a unique time in the church where uh, the, uh, the church's way of interacting with God through the Spirit changes from the old covenant to the new. Uh, there is also the personal engagement of the Holy Spirit through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We believe you're baptized once by the Spirit. Once at your regeneration, when the Holy Spirit changes you, gives you new birth so you can believe. And not only that, the Holy Spirit visits us and is sent to fill us multiple times. So you're baptized once, but you're filled multiple times as the Holy Spirit visits you and changes you so that you are empowered for service, empowered to be even more holy in your walk with Jesus. The Holy Spirit engages us in these ways, and it's sort of like this. In 1990s, the New England Journal of Medicine reported that doctors wanted to solve a critical problem with children born prematurely at a really low birth weight. I'm familiar with this personally. Both of my kids wanted to come out of the uh, were buns that wanted to come out of the oven early. One at 28 weeks and one at 32 weeks. The problem, uh, what they were trying to solve, was that these kids uh, were in danger of not making it. They were in critical condition. So they tried a pilot program in New England of filling critically ill preemies' lungs with liquid. You hear that? Filling their lungs with liquid. Liquid oxygen in particular is what they did, and they called it partial liquid ventilation, or PLV. This actually helped the babies breathe. Now, normally, if you put liquid in someone's lungs, they drown, right? (laughs) But not in this case. What they found is actually it's a therapy that helps really, and I think it's a perfect word picture for what God does with us in the Holy Spirit. He pours liquid oxygen in our lungs so we can breathe and engage the world in Him with life so we can relate to Him. That's what the Holy Spirit does when he comes to us. He breathes life into us. Now, that, that gives us kind of an overview, if you will, what Jesus is talking about in these first verses of this text. But then that begs the question, what does it look like when the Holy Spirit is sent to us? What happens? And what, how does that connect to life with Jesus now? Well, look at verse 8 with me, if you will. Verse 8 says this, And when he comes, that is the Holy Spirit, he will convict... The world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now Jesus is getting very specific on how the Holy Spirit wants to engage us. The first thing Jesus says, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The language of conviction is exactly what you think it is. It's the language of the courtroom. The implication is this. Jesus came into the world to save sinners like you and me. But he also came in the world as a covenant lawyer, bringing a case and worldliness as a prophet. The Holy Spirit continues that ministry of conviction of sin in life. Now, let me be clear. The Holy Spirit is also an advocate for us. So, when you feel condemned, He wants to give you assurance as a Christian. When you uh, need comfort and encouragement, He'll provide that. But please understand the first role of the Holy Spirit in our lives is that as a prosecuting attorney. He meets us and convicts us of sin to help us to see our worldliness and our lostness. That's His first job in our lives. I think this is a little bit of like a a contrary to what the world says. Our world is increasingly putting God on trial. If there's a God, why did he do this and why did he do that? And no doubt, we all have our angst questions about what God is up to in the world. But here's the thing. What this text is telling us is that God puts us on trial first and foremost. That's the thing we have to come to grips with in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, if you will, shines this bright light on our need and our brokenness and sin, sort of like when Nathan confronted David with Bathsheba and said, you are the man. You're guilty of sin. This reminds me of a time I was planting my first church, Redeemer, which was over in Union County. and In the early parts of the plant, I was actually being discipled by phone by a guy in a discipleship program. And we'd get on the phone every few weeks, and we would talk. And one time, my disciple friend Richard would say, Hey, Dean, so how's the church plant going? And I'd say, Hey, it's going pretty well. We got some people coming to Christ, you know, things like that. And talked about the good things. And then I brought this up. I said, You know, the people are giving me a really hard time about the worship And I kept going on about the problems of worship because we were having worship wars. And then here's what he said. He said, yeah, when people don't get what they don't want, they complain. And I said, yeah, that's right, they do complain. And Richard said this. He said, Dean, I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about you. And I was like, what? He said, you aren't getting what you want in church. You want a church where everybody does what you want and there's peace. And there has never been a church that has perfect peace in it. I went busted. I was like the Holy Spirit saying, Dean, you want to be Lord, but there's only one Lord of this church, and his name is Jesus. He's in charge. And what do you know? At the end of our very text today, Jesus says, All that the Father has is mine. Yes, that even includes His church. Shall I say it, SCPC? Does that not even include this church? Too many times, the Holy Spirit invades our world with conviction to point us out our brokenness and the unreasonableness of our expectations versus His lordship. And his sovereignty over all. But Jesus highlights in our text three ways that he does this. He convicts sin. And that's the way that we don't believe. We all walk around with a little bit of unbelief in us. If you're believers, we struggle. I mean, excuse me, as believers, we struggle with unbelief. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts us of our unbelief. He also convicts us of standard of righteousness. He sets up a righteous plan in his word. And what the Holy Spirit does is shows us we're not righteous, He is. And not only that, the Holy Spirit shows us judgment. That Jesus will one day judge Satan, the ruler of this world. He has already judged him at the cross and won the war. He's working out the battles right now for our hearts by convicting us in the Holy Spirit. What is the proper response to conviction in the Holy Spirit? Conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Well, here's what it is. Here's what the Bible calls us to. Faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. Faith and repentance says to God, I'm a sinner. I offended you. Not them. Not those people over there. Me. I did it. I'm responsible for not trusting you and not believing in your love. Repentance says, I give up my worldly ways. I give up my worldly ways as I discover them and turn to live a new life. Follow Jesus in new ways. That's what the Holy Spirit will do. He'll lead you to follow Jesus in new ways in your life. Faith and repentance aims to please God so that when we see him in heaven, he will say, well done. This week, uh, some of us from uh, SCPs were at the Gospel Coalition Conference, and the Lord, you know, convicted me. I heard an old quote that I've even preached multiple times from our dear brother, Tim Keller. And uh, he preached it, and I was like, oh my goodness, There, there you got to tell me something again, Lord. And here's what he said. He said this, the thing about Christianity that makes it different from all other religions is this. Christians, Christians not only repent of our bad works, our sin, we repent of our good works, of relying on those things that we think make us good, but are actually filthy rags. That's what makes us different as, as, a, as people, is repent of both our sin and our good works that are still tainted by our sin. How does this apply to us today? If you're not a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you that the Holy Spirit is working on your heart and wants to call you to Himself. He will actually help you to see how your life falls far short of what God's standard is, but He will also shine a light on who Jesus is in your life and how He got it right to rescue you. If You are a follower of Jesus. I would tell you that the Holy Spirit does this interesting thing, and I've been living this for 37 years. I was praying about it this morning. (laughs) The Holy Spirit tests us. He tries us. He tries our faith to help us see more of our need for him, not less. More of our brokenness, not less. So that we will follow him anew. Let's say you're struggling with work or parenting or marriage. Very often, like, why is this trouble coming our way? I would submit to you, maybe the prayer should be, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What do I bring to the table? What am I doing in this situation? So, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin now, but Jesus doesn't leave us there. As he tells us what the Holy Spirit does in verse 13 as well. Look at that with me. Listen to what he says. In verse 13, it says, I can't find verse 13. There he is. Uh, When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own account, But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The Holy Spirit comes and guides. He comes and convicts, but then Jesus has given us the positive here. He guides us into all the truth. To use my prior mountain climbing imagery, we had two guides who took us up and back. I mean, without those guys, we'd be lost. I mean, we didn't know what we were doing, and we didn't know what we were doing half the time. The Holy Spirit is the one like those guys, our Sherpas, if you will. Spiritual Sherpa who tells us where to go and what to do on this challenging and narrow path with Jesus. And he does so by guiding us in all the truth. You catch that little phrase, all the truth? Isn't that interesting? What is all the truth? All the truth is what we need to know from God. To live with and for him. It's all we, all the truth we need to know from God to live with and for him. I mean, need, notice how Jesus talks about how the Holy Spirit reflects what he says and what he declares. The Holy Spirit reflects what God the Father, God the Son say in his ministry. He tells the disciples of things to come. We can expect right here the things to come have to do with. Uh, the, the cross, the resurrection, ascension, even the second coming. But here's what happens with the apostles' writings. They actually explain what that means and how that applies to us even further. The Holy Spirit uh, gives us a hint of what Jesus' words are. You know what I love about Jesus' text? I keep picking up on it as we're preaching through it. He keeps saying, I tell you these things. These things, these things. You see that in verses 4 and 5? These things, these things. Reiterates, reflects, and accurately records the word of God of what Jesus has actually said to the apostles. In other words, the Holy Spirit uses words to change us, to build us. The gospel, he does that through Scripture for those of you who are newer to the Christian faith, Scripture, we believe, is inspired by God through the apostles whom Jesus is talking to in this text and who actually wrote this very book. 2 Peter 1 says this. Listen to this. This is Peter talking, and Peter says, We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart, knowing... That first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Now, if you're new to the faith or even not a follower of Jesus, what Peter's saying here is that this interpretation of Scripture doesn't come from just these guys. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter's saying this about himself. And he's saying this about the other apostles writing scripture. Now, that's the past, what Jesus did in the first century with the Holy Spirit and the apostles. What about all truth now? Well, here's what it is God speaks to us through his word, he speaks the gospel to us. And it's not just the individual words, although he's absolutely inspired all those, and they are all inerrant, it's the story, the gospel of who we are in Him and what He's done for us. The Holy Spirit illumines us through the Scriptures so we can know God personally. Here's what you can do with your life. Some of you are probably thinking, man, I don't get much out of my times with God. I've read the Word and it's like nothing. (laughs) I got nothing. Well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to try something different. When you sit down with the Word of God, pray in the Spirit. To understand it. Pause. Pray to see more than just words as you're reading. Listen to the Spirit of God as you go through the words. Pray for curiosity. Pray for submission. Through the Holy Spirit, you have to understand Jesus is sitting right there with you as you go through that word. He's there with you personally, Spirit. And He guides you in biblical truth so that you and I end up sitting under the Word of God, not putting it under us. Jesus is living at the right hand of the Father right now and chooses to speak through us in Scripture. He talks to us through his word. We have a communicating living God speaking through of all things this book. Now here's what the Holy Spirit will always do as you read. In verse 14, look at what it says. He that is the Holy Spirit will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Apparently, the job of the Holy Spirit is to take the scriptures, to take everything in life, and point it to Jesus, direct us to Jesus. The Holy Spirit not only puts a big light on our sin, he puts a bigger floodlight on Jesus and calls us to look to him for our salvation and life. You know what the first catechism, we're in the catechisms in the Presbyterian Church. The first catechism question of Westminster Shorter Catechism is, the chief end of man... Is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I might suggest to you that the chief end of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus and enjoy Him forever. We could say that of the Father as well, and the Son with the Father, and the Spirit. But that's what G- He's basically telling us in this text. So, what are we to do with this, and how are we to live? Well, here's what I would suggest to you. Given all we just talked about, how the Holy Spirit um, convicts, guides, and even glorifies Jesus, says, look to Jesus. We live in an age full of many voices, full of many thoughts and ideas. We live in a post-Christian age, which means those ideas cover the gamut and are multiplied through the internet, through the airwaves, whatever you want to call it. We live in an age of restless experientialism, always looking for the next big thing and experience in life. We're always looking as well as a people, uh, in America in particular, for our next big hero, our next big teacher, might I suggest even our next big savior. How can we know that something we hear or see is from the Holy Spirit? How can we know? There's so much coming at us. Well, back in the 18th century, there was a pastor and a theologian named Jonathan Edwards. He was a part of something called the Great Awakening, which was basically a renewal of people's faith on a large scale throughout the colonies at that time, up and down the East Coast. Jonathan Edwards was an intimate part of the Great Awakening and saw and heard of a lot of things that happened in the Great Awakening. Some things that were extraordinary uh, in what God was doing and some things that were like, I don't know what to make of this. So he wrote a great book called uh, The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Holy Spirit from 1 John 4. And he said some really good things that I would encourage you to consider on what, how do we know something's from the Holy Spirit. I would suggest to you it comes right out of this text, too. This is really good. How do you know in a super-spiritual age that something is from God, Jesus Christ? Well, here it is. Number one, the first mark is that the activity or experience exalts Christ above all others. Number one. Number two, It exalts the authority of Scripture and actually promotes the Word of God. Third, it exalts sound doctrine. Yikes! (laughs) Yeah, sound doctrine. What we say about God coming from Scripture. The fourth thing is it resists the ways of Satan. Anything that resists the ways of Satan. And the fifth and final is it promotes love among God's people, to their neighbors, and to one another. That's what the Holy Spirit gets involved with in those ways. He stirs up honor for Christ in His Word, and He gives us discernment through doctrine of what is good and of Him and what is not. The wonder of this is Jesus is in heaven right now, and He wants us to pay attention to how the Holy Spirit is moving in our midst and how God is changing us through His Word and through the movement of His life-giving Spirit as we're in fellowship with Him. I ask you today, has Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to you? Let's pray. Father, I thank You that You have spoken through Your Word. You've given us life. And we praise You today that you have not left us alone. You have given us as followers of you the Spirit living in us and with us. And Holy Spirit, we want you to make this truly a Spirit-filled church in the best sense of the word, in the richest sense of the word, Lord. We want to know you and want to be empowered to actually love and experience your love. Thank you that you have spoken in the gospel. Thank you that you are out to overcome our idols, our sins, our unrighteousness, and that through the grace of Jesus, you have overcome everything at the cross so we could have eternal life. It's all a gift from you, Lord. That's why we sing your praises in Jesus' name. Amen.